Welcome to Connect to Capital, the podcast brought to you by Scale Investors. I'm your host, Catherine Robson, Chair of the Scale Investors Board. Our vision at Scale Investors is to create a world where gender does not limit access to capital. We do that by putting our money where our mouth is and investing in outstanding women founders. But even more than that, we know the transformational power of collaboration and we are passionate about connecting founders with the advice, education and deep network that will enable them to thrive. In this podcast, we interview Australia's most successful and thoughtful venture investors because we believe that knowledge is power and education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. We hope you love this conversation and are as excited as we are about giving all entrepreneurs the opportunity to create a better future. It's time to open access. The best thing about working with Scale Investors is that I'm regularly introduced to someone who completely smashes my perception of what's possible. That's how I felt when I met Tristan Langley, who could be described as one of the original gangsters of Australian technology and venture capital investing. And I was amazed that I'd never heard of her. Originally from Sydney, having secured first-class honours in science and the university medal from the University of New South Wales, Tristan spread her wings, initially completing graduate studies in software engineering in Germany, and then an MBA from Stanford, which delivered her straight into the heart of Silicon Valley as the late 90s tech revolution was in full swing. Over the following nearly two decades, Tristan has had a front row seat to the highs and lows of technology and venture, and has sourced led or been operationally involved with private investments that have returned over $8 billion to investors. Tristan seems to be able to live life completely to the beat of her own drum, now splitting her time between her home in California and her exquisite eco-friendly wellness retreat in Peru, situated between Machu Picchu and the Incan capital of Cusco. Generous with her time and oozing with enthusiasm, The most striking thing about Tristan is how evidently she lives her values of integrity, excellence and diligence. Her story is really perception shattering. Tristan, it's so great to see you. I've been really excited to have this conversation. Where are you at the moment? Hi, Catherine. I am sitting in my home in Oakland, California, which is just down the road from Silicon Valley just across the bay from San Francisco. And how did you end up there, given that you're an Australian and uh, presumably you didn't imagine that this is where you would be at this point in your life? Well, Oakland, California, well, Silicon Valley has always been sort of that elusive place that if you're going to be in tech, you've got to get to San Francisco and Silicon Valley. And as an Australian, I think all Aussies are kind of trained with that sort of viewpoint. And it's true because if you want to make things happen, this is where Really, all the entrepreneurs and all the venture capitalists tend to congregate. That being said, you know, the world's diversified and changed and that landscape's quite different. But when I was starting out my career 20 years ago, Silicon Valley was it, the it place to be. And so I found my way here over the course of my career and then ended up falling in love and getting married (laughs) to someone based out of San Francisco. And so we moved our life over here and, uh, and we now live in the East Bay. Did you always know you wanted to be involved in tech? What were you like growing up? Were you, did you love computers and technology and know that's what you wanted to do? Well, I grew up in you know suburban Sydney in Lane Cove. You know, I w- went to school and everything, and I actually really enjoyed sciences. So I enjoyed all the scientific sort of aspects of high school. In fact, I was almost going to go into medicine. I got accepted to med school. And really, the tech came about by almost serendipity and accident. Because I applied, ended up applying to like a scholarship program. I thought, oh, why not? You know, free ride at university. 
called the Business Information Technology Program at the University of New South Wales and ended up getting accepted. And that program is now quite prolific. It's, it launched the careers in tech of, of many well-known <laughs> founders in Sydney <laughs> and Australia, but got into that course and then really just thought, wow, software engineering and, and this whole thing called the internet was just starting. So I started uni in 1995. And the internet was sort of just starting out in Australia at that time, and, and maybe the world for that matter. But it was quite profound. And so it was one of those accidental things of like, oh, you know, I really was going to be a doctor, <laughs> and then, you know, gone to med school, and then ended up getting this scholarship to study something that, you know, I really didn't have much knowledge about, but knew that there was a lot of smart people going into this area. And it seemed incredibly exciting at the time. When you finished uni, you didn't follow the traditional path into, you know, going and designing software or designing hardware, you went directly into venture and, and joined one of the sort of original foundation firms, if you like, in Australian venture history. So Allen and Buckridge, how did that actually happen? You've got to hand it to having advisors and mentors. I, I swear to God, like if any advice I have for young you know, entrepreneurs, go network like crazy and find some great advisors and mentors. Because one of my family friends and, and now still a mentor in my life, Mr. Frank Foster, had just joined Allen and Buckridge in Australia. And he kind of found out, I guess, just through the family connections that I'd um that I got the university medal in software at the University of New South Wales. And so he's like, oh, who's that person? <laughs> and he invited me in to come meet the team. He said, you know, we're looking for a young analyst who's versed in technology and um, can just help us out. And I thought, oh, yeah. And I didn't know much about venture capital at the time, but I read up on it. I, re I think I grabbed every single book on the topic. And this is sort of 99, 2000, like the sort of peak of the bubble. And the bubble's, you know, about to crash in April 2000. <laughs> and there I was, you know, reading up about it, thinking this is the best thing to happen to me is like getting into the tech industry on the investment side with this thing called venture capital. <laughs> So that's how it started. And I, I, you know, this mentor and friend said, you know, come on and join us as an analyst and we'll go from there. So winding back to winning the university medal, which I liked the way you just skipped over that quite quickly. I presume that there was a relatively small number of women in your cohort studying computer science. And so did people think it was remarkable that a woman had, was the top scholar in your cohort or? You know, gender in that time was just a thing. It was like, oh, okay, there's a handful of women it's pretty nerdy, a very geeky subject, you know. We're all pretty nerdy, actually, at the time. <laughs> and, um, you know, it wasn't top of mind that there wasn't even an industry. Imagine the internet hadn't really even come. You know, we were still sort of trying to figure out how to use Mosaic in the university labs. I mean, it was just this thing that was existed in university labs. You know, we had no real iPhones. We had no smartphones. We had, you know, black and white Nokias. I think the BlackBerry had just like made its debut in Australia. <laughs> that was it. And so this whole notion of this revolution and tech boom, so to speak, like we, we just couldn't fathom it at the time. You and I have talked about it a little bit before that, that the sort of experience at Allen and Buckridge was, you know, really seminal and taught you a lot. How did you then find yourself in the gravitational pull towards the US? And what was it like sort of arriving as a sort of, as you say, a little bit nerdy Australian who doesn't sort of, you know, hadn't grown up in that environment. Well, that, that was quite a 
cultural shift. I mean, Alan and Buckridge had partnered with a tech M&A group called Broadview, and this was actually quite forward thinking at the time. And Roger Allen had sort of really thought about these other strategic partnerships we could forge in Silicon Valley. Even Silicon Valley Bank, that sort of relationship, a guy named Larry Lopez, who ended up moving out to Perth, I think, was one of the founding partners that brought Australia into the fold and introduced us to Silicon Valley. So it was just one of those things where, you know, I was bouncing across the pond to San Francisco, where it was all happening. And I think the hardest thing was actually, oh my God, I could barely drive on the right-hand side of the road. It was the scariest thing. I had to go down the 101 freeway. You know, there was no Uber back then. You just had to drive around yourself. And there was, there was not even like a Google Maps. I had to go in. I had to, I had to go in, type in the address on Yahoo Maps or MapQuest. There's this thing called MapQuest. And I had to print out the instructions for each of my meetings. I had to plan my day because I had no idea how to get to any of these places. And I had to like read on a piece of paper. It was quite challenging because there's no GPS system, no smartphone. You know, Garmin wasn't in my car to help me out and I sometimes I'd have to pull over and ask for directions (laughs) did you just take that all in your stride was that just something that you're like oh I'm here you know just got to get on with it or or did some sometimes you feel like you had to pinch yourself and go what am I doing it was a bit of an imposter syndrome honestly because like I'm this Australian woman you know pretty newly minted out of uni and everything trying to make my way in the US and so I had to kind of fake it till you make it (laughs) I had to just go along with it. And half the time, I think the challenge was that entrepreneurs couldn't understand me because I had an Australian accent. And so that was like just one challenge of like half a dozen challenges at every point in time in the day. It feels like from afar, you really thrived in that environment and you made amazing contacts and found yourself in amazing situations with the opportunity to get to know some of the most successful people in that ecosystem. Can you tell us, are there any sort of stories you can share about feeling of, wow, how did I get here? You know, there's this sort of tradition, actually, of going to some of these parties or sort of networking events. I think I stood there. I I think I remember that feeling of having, I think it was Larry Ellison was just walking across the room. And I was like, oh, my God, that's Larry Ellison. (laughs) It's like the founder of Oracle. And you kind of just being in the same room as some of these people, was just extraordinary. I mean, it was um, the founders of X-Fire I got to sit in the boardroom with and, and everything and just sitting down with them and just, I mean, there's, these guys were just so smart, like off the charts, brilliant, coming up with ideas that, you know, no one had ever come up with or conceived before. And so you've got to sit there, like, I've got to remind myself not to, like, have my jaw hang open half the time, like, oh, my God, that sounds amazing. And so it was one of those moments where it's just like, oh, I have to collect myself and remember to take notes and (laughs) and pay attention. As you say, having grown up in a sort of suburban environment in Sydney, did you ever find yourself in sort of physical surroundings where you're like, oh my goodness, this is like wealth on a scale I've never seen before? Oh, you know, there are those stories where all of a sudden you're like, oh, let's go to this conference in Vegas because, you know, it's a consumer electronics show or whatever. And a bunch of the guys are like, yeah, yeah, we'll just... um, We'll take pictures jet. And you're like, what? And like, yeah, you know, Skip knows how to fly it. And well, you know, he's his pilot, so let's all go. And so next thing you know, you're rocking up to Palo Alto <laughs> Airport in a private jet. And, you know, I mean, these days, you know, private jets are very accessible to the 
average person, but for me, it was like, oh my goodness, it's, we're just popping over to Vegas for the day of conferences and, and then we'll pop back. It was kind of extraordinary, the fact that you just had like a jet at your disposal to go do work. <laughs> so that's what I had to pinch myself. You hear lots of stories about the sort of culture and behavior about Silicon Valley at that time. And there was that quite well-known book, Brotopia, about that sort of bro-ish yeah, culture. Yes, the yeah. bro culture. Did you experience yes. that? Yeah, you know, you got to keep up. You know, luckily, I was born and raised in Australia where you can actually hold your grog. You got to go out. You got to go out and network and you got to be seen to like, I wouldn't say play with the boys, but you know, kind of, you got to hustle for the deals. And if you're not out there hustling and you're not actually present, if you don't show up, you can't be in the game. Even if that meant, you know, chugging a few beers, you just sort of had to go along with it. I mean, I've got some pretty hairy stories in Vegas, but but probably off the record, Catherine. <laughs> but it sounds like you found a way to navigate your way through that so that you didn't feel like you were being taken advantage of, but you also could do your job properly and get the sort of opportunity to invest in the deals that you wanted and needed to. Did, was that conscious or you just sort of intuitively? Even just learning how to play poker. The best events were like poker games and you're like, oh my God, I've got to learn this game because I'm not going to get invited literally to the poker table, like literally. (laughs) And so you really had to sort of figure out, okay, what am I willing and able to do and and how can I be present? And, you know, part of it's drinking and part of it's showing up to poker games and some of it's even, you know, going to Vegas and just having a good time. And but you know, I, you know, I took it in my stride, and I think this was definitely pre Me Too movement and pre any nefarious kind of connotations with with some of that activity. And you know, some of it's going on around you and things, but it wasn't, I think, as dark as the more recent times, where I think it got a bit out of hand. And so it was all a bit of innocent fun, really. And was part of it also being a good investor? Like it feels like also that coupled with just if you're associated. Yeah, if you're associated with the, the good team, I mean, part of it is it comes with the territory a bit, you know, so people kind of have to not kowtow to you, but they kind of have to like have some respect for what you do because they, they know they might need you in another deal or they might want to be part of your deal. <laughs> and in terms of you building your skills as an investor, what's what are the things that you've developed over time that help you make good investments? Catherine, I'm, I'm a very detailed note taker. There were things that you catch in the meeting and people accidentally say, and I, I just scribble it down in the margin because you never know that one little piece of information can just come back and help you. It's all about knowing things and that knowledge, I mean, copious notes from just all sorts of things. I actually kept a very detailed spreadsheet of every single encounter and interaction and meeting I took. Like even if it was a coffee or just a, an exchange and I'd make a, a note in a, it would be a one line note in my spreadsheet of with that person, when, what it was about, where it could lead. And that was just me being incredibly kind of, call it anal <laughs> or, or just very diligent. <laughs> so you run your own firm now. Maybe can you tell us a bit about, you know, what your firm is looking for? And if you were sort of trying to put a shingle out to say, these are the sort of people who should come to us. To, to look to collaborate with us for investment? You know, what are the things that your firm really stands for and looks for in investments? Oh, I love that. Um, 
So my firm's Amalfi Capital. I co-founded it with Paul Wade, who's sitting in Melbourne right now. And we started Amalfi Capital off the back of a, another firm that we're very inspired by, a group called the Investment Group of Santa Barbara. And they ran a public-private fund, so a public fund coupled with select private investments. And we thought that was that's a great model. So we could benefit of having the public tech fund investing because it's liquid. So we have a hedge fund called Amalfi Capital Fund One Limited. And then we have a private fund, Amalfi Capital Investments Limited. And that coupled together, very tech focused, but we felt that they fed on each other. So I'll give you a quick story, anecdote. We love to talk to entrepreneurs. And one of my favorite questions is, what's really hard to do in your business? What's really challenging? And I was talking to a bunch of semiconductor entrepreneurs. I said, what's the hardest chip to make? And they came back and they said, oh, video. Oh, video chips are like, there's a lot of processing and it's hard. The algorithms are hard. You know, it's hard to implement. So I turned around and we said to Paul, I said, Paul, let's, let's look at video chip makers. And so we stumbled on a company called Amberella and the ticker's AMBA. And it turned out they became one of the chipsets for the GoPro camera. So we made that investment and then they became like this GoPro golden child and the stock went up, I think, six times. We sold the stock and made some money. But I think that that's just an anecdote of like sniffing around, trying to figure out what's hard to do in each industry segment and then figure out if there's a solution for it and then go from there. Entrepreneurs often get advice about, you know, don't take checks from just anyone Make sure you align yourself with people who share your values. When you think about yourself and Paul and Amalfi Capital, what, what are the sort of values of the firm that, that you think entrepreneurs should know? Well, that's a great question. So our values are we highly value integrity, excellence, discipline, and diligence. That's in our own investing style ourselves. And then we really value relationships and returns. I mean, it sounds obvious, but... How do you cultivate a relationship? And we think about this all the time, just even the art of having a coffee with someone, how to really be present, how to be a really good listener. And Paul's like an exemplary listener and just an attentive person. And that comes from his journalistic background as well, it's like really trying to find the right story, read between the lines. And that's what you're trying to do in sort of any sort of a situation. It's like, what else is going on here? You know, one of the, the best examples is Tim Draper, who I was working for, when they invested in Hotmail, the founders actually came in and pitched something completely different. And Tim just said, what else are you guys working on? It's just like that sort of other question. And they're like, oh, we've got this email system. It's called Hotmail. <laughs> and he ended up investing in that. And so it wasn't the idea that they walked in with. It was the idea that they kind of were dabbling in, <laughs> which became the next big thing. And so You've always got to sort of explore the edges, as I like to call it, you know, really, really push up against other things that might look like boundaries or barriers and, so, and try to pierce that. And so, yeah, that's, that's really for, for figuring out new things for entrepreneurs. I know you're not supposed to do this, but are there any of your investments that you've made that are sort of some of your favourites, either because of the returns or the relationship or something else that makes them stand out for you? Oh, that's, that's a good one. One of our favorites, it's very near and dear to our heart. I mean, only because it's been such a journey and just watching the entrepreneur like go through the cycle between COVID to like international supply chain panics is, is Ipsy. And actually, they started off as a company called myglam.com. And 
the whole idea was sort of like these glam bags of makeup with a YouTube influencer. And this is, you know, back almost 10 years ago. And we invested in the company is now doing, you know, close to a billion in revenue. And so that's a company that, you know, came out of a relationship from Stanford Business School. It's just been a fantastic ride. And, and you know, they've survived everything from supply chain setbacks when the international COVID hit to like huge peaks in demand. And you know what the most outstanding thing is? It wasn't because people were going out because, because it's, this is a makeup company. This wasn't about makeup to go out. This was about makeup to sit on a Zoom call. They had to look better on a Zoom call than going out for coffee. <laughs> So makeup demand went higher. It was just extraordinary. When you work with, as you say, like that's a company that's had challenges. Are there things that you learn from entrepreneurs as you work with them and invest in them? You know, the most interesting thing is resilience. Trying to be that person on the other end of a call or a conversation where you can be someone that you can be a shoulder to cry on. I mean, at the end of the day, being an entrepreneur is really tough. You can go through your own challenges. At the end of the day, you're only human. And so the key thing is how do you be someone the other end of that call or the other end of that conversation that can hold space for compassion and empathy? That's actually key because at the end of the day, you know, you've got to be this ruthless investor on the one hand. But I think as a woman, you know, you've got huge advantage to be that compassionate, empathetic listener and the other confidant on the end of a, a tough conversation. One of the challenges in terms of, you know, women founders is finding women investors. Do you think there's more we could be doing to sort of, as you say, like women have a real advantage because they've got a natural disposition to marry those two characteristics? Do you think there's more we could be doing to encourage women investors? Yeah, I think I think you guys, especially in Australia, especially with the scale group, you guys should do more mentorship programs for young women. That's an area where you're either mentoring young engineers to think commercially about their products or you're mentoring young up-and-coming people in finance or, or who have a deep interest in venture because it's kind of an apprenticeship that you want in the industry. It's, sort of, it's really an apprenticeship type of industry where you kind of have got to learn on the ropes. Like you've got to learn and roll up your sleeves, but you want kind of a good mentor alongside you so you're not trying to come up with all the judgments yourself, you know? I can imagine, you know, people listening to this thinking, oh, I'd love to, you know, work with Tristan, you know, that, that super smart coupled with, you know, compassion and empathy. How do you narrow it down in terms of the companies that you're going to invest in? What are the sort of key criteria that you're looking for? You know, it just takes time to build that relationship and trust. And so it's not going to be something that just pops up in an instant or in one meeting. It's over the course of many conversations. And some of it is also how much feedback can they take on as well? Are they open to feedback? Are they open to like sharing ideas? Are they open to improving? And that journey in itself is an entrepreneurial journey. As you say, the entrepreneurial journey can sometimes be a winding path and can have enormous highs, Ups but also downs. Yeah, <laughs> deep lows. In your career, have there been sort of setbacks or challenges that you've really learned from? Oh, goodness. How personal are we going, Catherine? We'll go pretty personal, right? As personal as you can, given that all of us are humans. Right. Look, my biggest setback was a health incident that happened in 2014 where I suffered a subarachnoid hemorrhage stroke. And that was, you know, I was on my, I was this close to death. So I was fighting for my life in the ICU in 2014. And, 
you know, that was a huge setback, huge setback just in terms of career, everything else. I mean, but, you know, having <laughs> the number one thing I tell all women is like, find the most wonderful partner to be your significant other and, and life will be just dandy. <laughs> no, my, my husband, Terry, really has just been the guiding light at my side for my recovery and and beyond. I can imagine for someone like you who's fiercely intelligent and, you know, as you say, you've got strong values, but also your capacity to apply your intellect to solve problems, you know, shapes your perception of who you are. Recovering from that and getting to the point where you are today where you're better than ever, was that sort of psychologically challenging to feel like, you know, what if I'm not the person I was before? I was terrible. And actually even trying to think who I was before, but then also even thinking, do I want to be the person I was before? That was actually the opportunity. It's like, who was I before? So just identifying that. And then the second part is, do I want to be that again? Or is this a, a blessing disguise and I can be an evolved me? Like who I was and then even more. And so that was like, wow, that's a reset you don't get all the time in life to just be like, oh, you know what? That was me. I can actually step out of that desire to just crawl back into the prior me and really kind of capture like what is an evolved Tristan Langley? And that was like, wow, that's actually takes you to another level. <laughs> wow, that's amazing. Have you, in terms of practically, have there things that you've changed in your life? Oh, Catherine, I don't know if this is the right forum, <laughs> but <laughs> here we go. So I did some very interesting work with psychedelics and that opened up an entire new realm. I mean, there's sort of history of a Walt Disney taking psychedelics, Steve Jobs taking psychedelics. I mean, I'm not putting myself on that plane, but I'm just saying <laughs> there are some amazing minds that have opened themselves up to this area. And for me, that was like, wow, that put me on a different plane. And just in terms of thinking about the possibilities in life. I know you've got a, a sort of deep connection to South America. C can you talk a bit about, you know, the time that you spend in Peru and, you know, why that's important? Sure. So my mother-in-law founded a vegetarian yoga spiritual retreat center in the heart of the Sacred Valley, Peru. So we're right between Cusco and Machu Picchu in Peru. Our resort is called Wilcatica, Wilcatica, Peru. And my husband and I, he, he decided to take it over a few years ago and we've just thrived. Imagine trying to take over a new resort international, <laughs> internationally six months before COVID hits <laughs> or about a year before COVID and then COVID hits and then you're like, what do we do? And fortunately, we're both pretty open-minded and innovative and we decided to, to create what we call very customized wellness programs and we just started opening this up and we put it out on Instagram and Facebook and, and we just got all these responses we actually opened up an entire new market which was the domestic market inside Peru and these are Peruvians that have never done yoga have never done spirituality and we just opened up a new market we we're like okay the borders are closed <laughs> I guess our market's domestic and we survived and now we're actually thriving we just opened up everything in 2022 will hopefully be one of our best years with international travel. That being said, Omicron's sort of, you know, putting things a little bit in perspective, but we're, we're pretty optimistic that international travel will come back. 
pretty fully. And how much time do you and Terry spend in Peru versus other parts of the world? Well, it's about six months, about 50-50 here in, in the Bay Area and the 50-50 in Peru. And then, and then when Australia's borders are open, of course, we come back. <laughs> I mean, we, we actually managed to get back to Australia this Christmas, which was a miracle. But, um, but yeah, I mean, Australia, we bounce through there at least once a year. And that whole global citizen, is that also part of keeping your mind open to opportunities and, and also sort of not getting too stuck on the, the smallness of life? Just exposing yourself to the way others live. I mean, I had the, the sort of deep privilege of actually doing some work in Burma, in Myanmar, and that was with Stanford with the design school. And we were doing projects there to help farmers. And that was just, talk about eye-opening. It was just extraordinary. Do, do you know what the biggest crop in Burma is? You'd, you'd think it was rice. But one of the biggest crops in Burma are flowers and flowers for worship because there's so many festivals for the various gods and for various temples that they have to grow so many flowers for people to make offerings. <laughs> it is, so that's extraordinary. I, I learned that when I was there. So that's a, a side note. <laughs> Sorry, Catherine. Oh, no, well, it's just so fascinating. And, and it's funny because it feels like you've shared so much, but is there anything that people are surprised to find out about you? I think, oh, this is a bit tongue in cheek, but people are surprised that I find time to sleep. I'm happy to jump on calls with London. I'm happy to jump on calls with Australia. So I'll just be up 2am phone call. I can do that, you know. <laughs> so I don't know. I just, uh, I just make it work, even though there's international borders and Travel. I mean, COVID sort of being a blessing and a curse, right? Because I can do calls all day long, but then I can't travel anywhere. So, so it means just being on the on Zoom for twenty four hours. And how do you maintain your energy? Because it feels like you're very engaged, as you say, and present in whatever you're doing, and you find time to do stuff. Where do you get your energy from? It's really about time management. I think just being very efficient with your time. So that's like. Rule number one, like, you know, I, I, for example, I front load my week, just meetings on Monday, Tuesdays, I try and find time to work out and then rest. And then, and just even just having music playing in the background and having that quiet time just for yourself. You know, I think that's key. It's just, you know, finding that little bit of time for yourself, whether it's in meditation, just listening to some music that you like. I think just making a little time for yourself, even if it's 10, 20 minutes a day is actually really quite invigorating. In terms of advice you've received over time, is there a piece of advice that's really helped, you know, shape the the person you are now or the, or the way you approach life? You know, Tim Draper just, he's very much like the Nike logo of just do it. His advice is just go for it. If you want something, just go for it. It's just so encouraging. Never doubt yourself. He's, the best thing you can cultivate is restlessness. <laughs> cultivating restlessness is actually a bit of an art form but but that was his advice is just get that fire in your belly going and just keep it alive so don't be satisfied don't be complacent just keep restlessly searching for you've mentioned a few what feel like pivotal people in your life in that sort of pantheon of of important people is there someone that you sort of you know, most admire or that's most influential as a role model for you? Oh, yeah. And I think I mentioned him before. Frank Foster is my mentor. He married an Australian, Tiffany Foster. And it was just a family friend thing. It was one of my dad's best friend's daughters married this guy. And he is still my, my mentor. He lives in Santa Barbara and he's just got this wonderful perspective on life. And he just always finds the time to just sit down and have a coffee and talk and just talk, just 
just sort of be present and listen to what you've got to say and you've got time to listen to what he has to say. And I think that's what's incredibly valuable is just making the time to talk to other people. Just drop in and be there in that moment with someone else and just connect for whether it's five minutes or five hours. It just gives you so much perspective because that's how you really cultivate that insight into someone else's life. Beyond people, are there books or podcasts or other things that you really love that you recommend to people? Uh, hold on. I'll just, I've got a couple sitting on my table. Uh, excellent. It's quite a big book, but this is actually a good one. This is Ray Dalio's Principles, but it's, but it's very like investor focused and is, kind of. Is that, that's the first one? That's Principles for yeah. Life and Work? Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's a good one. And then and this is I just got this. Ooh, creative creative acts for curious people. And this is just great. It's just it's a pr really practical guide. They've got all these exercises to just go and do stuff. Like just like they've got this one chapter called Expert Eyes, and it's basically just go and observe people and document it and see if you can then translate that into looking through their eyes of what they're doing and just giving you that. It's just a really great way to just think differently. And so they've got um, very practical exercises of just doing things to, to help stimulate your own creativity and the way you think about things. Uh, who are the authors of that one? It's Sarah Stein Greenberg. She was one of the founding principals at the design school at Stanford. At Stanford, yeah. Yeah, so, so the D school, the design schools, I actually did a course there as well, and that was fantastic. That was the one I went to Burma. Ah, Okay. In terms of your advice that you would give, particularly to entrepreneurs who are thinking about wanting to raise capital, what advice have you got? Do your homework on the people that you're pitching and you're meeting with. And the more touch points and connections that you have when you go into a conversation, the better. So know your audience in a sense. Do your real homework and then you can actually have real conversations rather than just this kind of like, oh, he's just an audience and I'm trying to get them over the line to maybe invest. So just really think of the personal approach and network like crazy. Like Take as many meetings as possible with everyone who you think might be helpful on the fundraising journey. Just go out there, put yourself out there. So last question, what are you really excited or optimistic about? So this is kind of interesting because I'm pretty excited about agricultural technology and also food supply innovation because I think there's this chance to like make more local, more accessible. And I, I don't think we've kind of solved that because, you know, even in Australia, like sort of like you've got big agricultural companies and it's like we haven't really thought through agriculture because we haven't needed to, if that makes sense. But I think there's just this chance for innovation in the, in the ag field. And then because um, I love the idea of scalable farm-to-table possibilities. I think I'm also optimistic about the use of psychedelics to expand human consciousness. So I'll leave it there. <laughs> well, Tristan, it's been an absolute delight to spend time with you. It's amazing how your energy and restless curiosity is just so infectious. So thank you so much for sharing a little slice of your world. Thank you. And, and to all your scale colleagues, keep backing amazing female founders and please encourage girls to go into tech and engineering. And maybe there's more avenues you can explore for scholarships in the area. Music to my ears with a teenage daughter. I just think we could do so much more to change the perception of what 
a life in tech might look like. It's not all just sitting in hoodies in dark rooms at two o'clock in the morning coding. That The life that you've been able to craft, I think, is really inspirational for, for lots of... Oh, well, you can wear a hoodie. <laughs> uh, you're amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Catherine. Take care. We hope you loved today's conversation as much as we did and are fired up to take your startup journey to the next level. As an investment network founded by women, no one better understands what it takes for women-led startups to thrive, like scale investors. We believe education is a key driver in removing the investment gender gap. That's why we created Scale Educated, an education platform with online courses for both founders and investors. If you're a woman founder, Scale has two education programs, Scale Founded, a five-day short course, combining one-hour live webinar sessions delivered by experienced investors and founders, access to an online education platform, and the opportunity to network with trailblazing women entrepreneurs. Scale Founded is launching in February 2022. The other exciting program is Scale Empowered, a 10-week facilitated series, an opportunity to put your learnings into the context of your own startup with a cohort of incredible women entrepreneurs by your side. You can find all of the information and register on our website, www.scaleinvestors.com.au.